0: So it is good to be back with you all. Um, I don't know if it was mentioned last week, but I was with a team of people who were partially from our high school ministry, but also from among us here at College and Career, and I was over in England, and so that was exciting. I like it across the pond. It's generally an agreeable area. I spent the 4th of July with the people who we were liberated from, (laughs) so that felt somehow treasonous, and yet they recognized that, that we won, and so... They made hamburgers and hot dogs for us in concession to our victory over their tyranny. So, I was in England and I don't know popularly what comes to your mind in terms of like cultural artifacts when you think of England. I would venture to say a lot of people hear England and they think Harry Potter and that's fine if you love witchcraft and demonism. I actually really I really do like Harry Potter, so there's, there's no slight against that. But for many of us, that's what comes to mind when you think of that part of the world. Uh, and yet for me, although I do think of Harry Potter and I do like Harry Potter, when I think of England, I think more so of Narnia. I think more so of Screwtape. I think more so of Paralandria. I think of the work of C.S. Lewis. And in my mind, that's the birthplace of all these these brilliant ideas that came from uh, somebody who I am in so many ways indebted to in terms of my own Christian life. And so to get ready for this trip, rather than me, well, in addition to me praying, which is significant, not rather than me praying, this would be bad, I read, the, I started to read at least this copy of The Line the Witch, in the War, Wardrobe that my grandparents had given me a number of years ago for Christmas. And the thing that I was reminded of revisiting these stories as an adult because I'd read them when I was younger, was, was the power of Lewis's language, like the power of the images that he uses, the way that he can take these, these ideas that are so central to Christianity, so central to the gospel, and he can communicate them through his stories and through his allusions and through these casual one-off remarks that are uttered by talking animals. And somehow, the, the forcefulness and the beauty of his prose can cause you to think about something that you've grown numb to, and awaken your heart afresh to it. And that, that was my experience, a hundred pages or so into The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, getting ready to go to England. There were these things that I didn't realize, but, I, but as I read, I, I came to this understanding, you know, I've grown numb to this aspect of the Christian life, and it, and it took the spirit using the writings of Clive Staples to sort of shake me out of my numbness and my slumber. And this has caused me to think a little bit lately just about the power of words in general the power of communicating not just true things, but true things beautifully. Because the reality is that we live in a sort of world where sometimes brute facts, no matter how accurate, no matter how succinct, they don't change people. They don't change their hearts and they don't even necessarily change their minds. Because more often than not, we're not just governed by what we know, but by what we love. And so uh, consider, I mean, how many bad ideas about God have been accepted uncritically because they were proclaimed in ways that were poetic and beautiful? How many good ideas about God have been abandoned because they were cited as uh, some sort of brute fact to be memorized rather than realities that set our hearts on fire and make us sing? There's power in language to stir the human soul towards true things or dissuade us and convince us of things that are false just because they sound so pretty when we hear it. Paul is at this point in his letter where he's turned his attention from the Corinthians who are on the fence about him as an apostle. He's turned his attention from the people who've changed their mind and have turned back to truth, and he's turned his attention now to those who are still actively opposing him. These people who call themselves super-apostles, which is just the corniest name for heretics i've ever heard of but they picked it so they can keep it i guess and so he's 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 not addressing the people who've changed their mind anymore he's turned his attention to the people who have caused the problem and those who support him and yet the inclination in my mind would be if i'm dealing directly with people who are teaching error if i'm dealing directly with people who are are speaking something that's heretical my first thought would be drop some wisdom like let's drop some facts let's lay down some knowledge In Paul's case, it might be something like, hey, you guys are heretics. Hey, you're going to hell. Hey, if you follow them, you're going to go to hell too. Hey, you're lying about God. All true things. And yet, in in our text for the evening, in 2 Corinthians 11, we'll be mostly in 1 through 6, Paul doesn't do that. Paul speaks in images. He speaks in poetry. He speaks in illusions. He doesn't just drop facts. Because the reality is that what needs to happen in the heart of these people is not that they would have an intellectual knowledge of what's going on. That's important. That's primary. And yet we're not brains on a stick. The people who led these Christians in Corinth astray are not brains on a stick. They don't need to just know the problem. They need to feel the weight of the moment in which they find themselves. And so Paul speaks in images he speaks in poems and poetry and allusions and biblical references and so we come to our text for the evening it's 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 1 through 6 paul says this i wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness do bear with me i feel a divine jealousy for you for i betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to christ but i am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I consider that I am not in the least bit inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way I have made this plain to you in all things. So Paul begins sort of this layer upon layer of images by starting out saying that I want you to bear with me here because I feel this sort of divine jealousy for you because I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So what Paul is doing here is he's laying hold of this image of marriage. It's one that has resonance in our day and age, even in modern marriage ceremonies. Uh, this idea that Paul is the father of the bride, and the bride is the church in Corinth, and Christ is the groom, and it's his job to, as the father of the bride to get the bride to the groom in one piece. Now, there's a movie called Father of the Bride that I thought would give me great sermon illustrations. I read the plot on Wikipedia. It seems relatively unimportant to what we're talking about. And there is this sort of cultural distance that stands between us. Because while there is some connection between marriage in our day and age, Paul is living during a period where marriages are arranged. And I know that some of you in here, especially if you're stuck in the dating game, you just wish kind of that that marriages were arranged that would make life so much easier. I'm kind of speaking for myself in some ways. Uh, But there's also this distance where we kind of look back at arranged marriage and, and maybe have some accurate but some warped perceptions of it. So in Paul's day... An arrangement for a marriage was sort of a legal contract that existed between the father of the bride and the groom and his family. That's not to say that the the bride's opinions weren't taken into consideration. The best families cared very deeply about who their daughter cared for uh, and what that would mean for their long-term relationship. And yet, just legally speaking, this is a contract on the part of the father of the bride and the groom and his family. And the father of the bride's job is to get that bride to the wedding in one piece without losing any limbs in the process without any sort of crazy catastrophic things happening at which time he passes her off to the husband who is meant to care for her in the way that her father once cared for her, and she is to step under his covering in his care and his protection. And so Paul uses this image. The Corinthians are the bride. Christ is the bridegroom. The wedding is the day of Christ's return and it's his job to keep them safe until that day. And then you have these super apostles. And what they're interested in doing is steering this bride away from her groom towards some other lover, some other voice that calls to her from a distance. And, I mean, in Paul's day and age, engagement was as good as marriage. Like, you could just round up to marriage, which is why Mary and Joseph are engaged, and yet when he finds out that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, he's going to divorce her. Because it, it, that's just what it is. To, to violate an engagement is the same thing as adultery. So don't miss this picture. What, what the super apostles are tempting this church toward. It's not like an agree to disagree issue. There, there's a wide net for orthodoxy. There's a, a, a lot of room to be a Christian and disagree on secondary issues. Whether tattoos are a sin or not. I have opinions, whether Christians can or can't drink, uh, whether the miraculous gifts of tongues and prophecy and healing are for today. There's room for discussion. Those are things we we can debate together. But what Paul wants them to see is that this is not just some secondary issues that you're going back and forth over. What you are being tempted towards is adultery. What you're being tempted towards is not slight, and what you are tempting this church towards as super apostles is not insignificant, secondary, tertiary issues. This is adultery. And that should resonate not just in Paul's day, but in our own day. Because I know there's people in this room who have watched their parents' marriages collapse because of infidelity who have in your own romantic lives seen the consequences of unfaithfulness, the weight of that betrayal is inconceivable. I know of no person who's going to make a case for why adultery seems like a great idea and it's good for families. Paul says to this church and these super apostles, you are hurtling towards a spiritual adultery and a turning from the one who has loved you with his very life. And then he switches metaphors. He moves from being a father to the bride. And it causes him to reflect on the foundations of marriage in the Old Testament. And so he says, I am afraid. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ so he reaches back to the the foundations of the scripture the foundations of the world in which the bedrock of marriage is laid and he says I'm afraid that what has happened then is what is taking place with you right now and this is this is worth thinking about I mean the reality is if you just reflect on Genesis three Eve is not dragged against her will towards defying God's commandment like the serpent doesn't wrap his arm around her hand and force her to eat the apple or whatever it might be she goes willingly, and yet there's a sense in which she's deceived, and there's these, these layers of deception that take place in Genesis 3. Because the thing that the serpent repeats over and over and over again in leading Eve astray is that there is benefit to eating from this thing that's been forbidden. Surely you will not die. You'll become wise. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. It's an appeal to her pride. It's an appeal to her intellect. It's, her, it's an appeal to her desire to have intellectual knowledge and, and to sit in a position of authority and a position of power. And this temptation towards the appearance of knowledge, uh, this temptation towards finding yourself in an exalted position of thoughtfulness, this has been a temptation towards error throughout the history of the church. I'm not saying that wisdom is bad. I am pro-college. I am pro-education. God is the author of all wisdom. But, but very often, the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to the world. In the early church, there was a first great error that arose called Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And there were people walking around saying, you know, all the things that Jesus told the apostles, they're good, they're great, but he said more. There's this secret wisdom that he's entrusted to a few of us. And so if you really want to be wise, if you really want to be smart, you need to come talk to one of us and we'll let you in on the secret wisdom. And from this group, you find things like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene the secret wisdom of Jesus in our modern day this temptation towards appearing thoughtful and wise and knowledgeable leading to error is, is so clearly demonstrated there's a there's a book written by D.A. Carson where he talks about the life of a Christian scholar and he, he mentions somebody not by name who's a New Testament scholar and this man was approached to write a uh, write an essay for a book on something that was significant something that was a, a central issue of the Christian life and his response was, "Listen." If I write this, then my colleagues will know what I believe, and I probably won't be up for a promotion. So just, just know, like, I'm, I'm on board with you, but I just don't want to publish in this area. And then the day came where it didn't matter what he believed in private because the fact that he believed it at all was a threat to his public credibility and the appearance of wisdom, and so he jettisoned it. And he moved on up the ranks. And yet that's the temptation in our day and age. To, to preach the cross sometimes feels like foolishness, and the great temptation in each of our hearts is to change it just a little bit and change it enough that it's socially and culturally acceptable and we don't appear so foolish. He's afraid that this is what's happening to the Corinthians in this culture of health and wealth and success. To follow a crucified Savior is ridiculous. Why would you follow a God who died? Why would you follow a God who, who didn't get off the cross and beat up the people who persecuted Him and so the apostles fashion a God in their own image who fits their cultural needs in the interest of appearing wise and circumventing the foolishness of the cross. But, but there's more that goes on when Eve is deceived that applies to what's going on with the Corinthians. Uh, because as you watch the dialogue that happens between Satan and Eve, there are these bits of Scripture that are sort of um, mixed in as it goes. Uh, Eve is not very good at quoting the Bible like she would fail in a Sunday school class if she was quoting verses for candy, um, but she gets bits and pieces of it right. And then Satan takes bits and pieces of Scripture and he, he sort of twists them and he bends them in on themselves and he, and he circumvents them, but, but it's there. There's this dialogue that's kind of hovering around what God has said without ever actually landing on what God has actually said, without ever fully taking into account everything that God has said, and sometimes outright questioning what he's said. Uh, Dr. Scott Swain, who's the president of my seminary, said that so often when we come to wrong ideas about God, when we come to things that we would call heresy, which is a heavy word, and you shouldn't just throw that around for people you mildly disagree with, what tends to happen is that we take one thing the Bible says and we emphasize it to the exclusion of everything else that it says. It's not that what we're saying is totally wrong, it's just not fully right. So, prosperity gospel. God wants you to be happy, wealthy, wise, rich. The fact is, there's some people God really loves and he gives them a whole lot of stuff. See Solomon, see David, see Job. I'm not one of those people. But there is also this great sense throughout the scope of scripture that God's greatest gift is not his material blessings, it's himself. It's his presence. And so to take the material part and ignore the fact that God gives us more than things, he gives us himself is to distort the gospel. This can go on and on and on. We can emphasize Jesus' humanity to the exclusion of his divinity. We can emphasize his divinity to the exclusion of his humanity. We can talk about God in such wrathful terms that he doesn't seem loving. Or we can consider him so loving that we reject out of hand the idea that he would ever justly judge sin. We pit one part of the Bible against the other. We twist it in on itself. And we normally twist it in directions which are more palatable to us and make it easier for us to exist in the world which is so hostile to the gospel. this is the great fear that paul has of what is going on in corinth that they're accepting an easier christianity that they're that they're twisting the scriptures so that it makes it easier to be in a world which seems so hostile but there comes a point where you so change your description of somebody or your description of somebody is so incomplete that you might as well not be talking about the right person so let's go back to this sort of uh, father-of-the-bride situation. I'm sure that this has never happened in the history of modern marriages, but let's suppose that father-of-the-bride says to the bride who has never seen her husband before, I'm going to walk you up to the man with long hair. He's got shoulder-length hair, it's flowing, it's brown, it's shampooed, it's conditioned, there are no split ends, his hair is just, it's, it's glorious, it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, and, and he goes on and on and on about this one aspect of the man, failing to mention his height, his weight, uh, failing to mention his age Failing to mention all of the other things about him and she walks into a room with three or four really well shampooed long-haired men Okay, so so who is the groom at this point? Is it possible that his description of the groom has so missed the mark of the fullness of who he is that she might as well not even be talking about him anymore He might as well not even be dealing with the same person now, This is this is Paul's fear because he says to them, if somebody proclaims another Jesus, if you receive a different spirit than the Holy Spirit, if you accept a different gospel, you put up with it readily enough. You don't seem terribly concerned by that. You know, when I was in England, I had some really good conversations with some Mormon friends that I met in the park there. And the thing that they continually brought me back to was, you know, it's so cool that we, we all just love Jesus. And, and we're all just serving Jesus together. And you know, we may disagree on some things, but we're all seeking Jesus. And the thing that I continually brought them back to was, who do you think that is? Because there comes a point where our descriptions of Jesus are so inconsistent with one another that we might as well not be talking about the same person. If you think that he was uh, the father, or the not rather the father, but the the child of heavenly father who lives on another planet who was once a man who produces spirit children and on and on and on it goes into Mormon theology. We're not talking about the same person anymore. It doesn't matter if you use the same names. It doesn't matter if you use the same terminology. Our understanding of who stands behind that name is so foundationally different. We're not talking about the same person. And this is, this is what's happening here for Paul. This is what he's so concerned by is that these super apostles, they're, they're talking about Jesus. And they're using words like gospel. And they're imparting to people some sort of a Holy Spirit, but it is so different from the God of Scripture and the one with whom the apostles have walked and the one who Paul saw on the road to Damascus that it is not the same person anymore. It is another gospel. It is different. But they don't care. The names, the terms, they're the same. Why not? The the fact of the matter is that Paul has already laid down for them many of the contours of the gospel. You see it in his letter of 1 Corinthians. He gets to this point and he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, that's important because Paul is telling the Corinthians, this is what I was told to say, which means that what Paul is about to say precedes Paul. Some of you are in our small groups walking through the Apostles' Creed. It's one of the earliest statements of what Christians believe. Within a hundred years of the New Testament. But what Paul is about to quote here in his first letter to the Corinthians is within seven years of the life of Christ. This is early, early. And it's not a complete description of the gospel, but hear what he lays out as being central. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There's no indication that the super apostles have any interest in a crucified Savior. They have no interest in the sort of God who needs to die to redeem his people. They're interested in a God that will make them and everyone around them healthy, wealthy, and wise. But this Jewish carpenter hanging on a tree, they have no time for. So they can use the term gospel, but in the contours of what they're saying, they haven't even hit one of the things that are of first importance. And can I just say in our modern world, These things that Paul's laid out, they're hard. They are hard things to stand on. It requires us to say things about ourselves that we don't want to say about ourselves. It requires us to say things about the world that are uncomfortable because if our sin is of the gravity that it requires the death of the Son of God, then we are more wicked than we would ever dare have said. And that's hard in an age of self-esteem. The words of the gospel that Paul gives to these Corinthians that they're so eager to abandon, it is not ultimately a word of death for them. It is a word of life because Paul doesn't stop with the death of Christ. He is buried. He is raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he goes on for the rest of the letter to talk about the hope that comes from the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of God. This great thing to be held out in front of the church That because of our brokenness, the body of the Son of God is broken for us, so that what is broken might be made whole. Because of the man of sorrows, what is sad will become untrue, in the words of Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. Because of the Son of God, those who are rebels are now called sons. This is the gospel that saves. This is the Jesus worth following. This is the hope that has carried the church. And how dare we, like Corinth, ever settle for anything less than the glory of the gospel. We are more sinful than we ever would have said, but we are more loved than we ever could have imagined because the groom has loved us with his very life. How dare we run towards those who offer so much less and care for us so little. This is Paul's fear for the church in Corinth, but, but it's also the risk for the church in every age. Um, there was a, a German theologian in the 70s and he has some interesting ideas, but he recognized the temptation of most people in his age. The sort of Christianity they wanted it was a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without holiness through a Christ without a cross. And that's the temptation in every age. And yet there is no power in that gospel. But this gospel, Christ dying for our sins, buried and raised on the third day and coming again, there is power in that, and that is good news, not just for us here in Tampa, but for the whole world and the church in all ages. So may we walk in that, and may that truth carry you safely towards the groom who purchased you with his life.